Radio. Hi, I'm Paul Ellard. Welcome to Our Queen, Our Mother, the Graces of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In our sessions, we will be exploring the topic of the Blessed Virgin Mary and why she is important to the Christian faith. With each talk, we will try and open up and explain in simple terms the Catholic Church's teaching on the Blessed Virgin Mary. We will also include a testimony of people who have experienced her love and grace in their own lives. So welcome to the program and let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Loving Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your mother. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful gift that helps us journey to you. And as we look today at the topic of Ark of the Covenant, may you send your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts, to enlighten us, to help us to understand these beautiful mysteries and wonderful treasures that you have given your church. Help us to go deep and to understand so that we too can love your mother as you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mary, Ark of the Covenant, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Welcome to Our Queen, Our Mother. In this session we're going to be continuing our look at Mary in Scripture. And today we want to look at Mary, Ark of the Covenant. Um, that title, Ark of the Covenant, as you know, is, um, is a title that we use a lot in prayer, particularly in the Litany of Loretto. We use it to, as, a, um, as a way to honour Mary. So today we want to look at the background of that in Scripture and it's a fascinating um, insight into how Old Testament and New Testament link together. One of the um, biblical concepts that we use in relating the New Testament to the Old Testament is what we call typology. Now typology, what we do with typology is that we look at persons that are prefigured in the Old Testament in preparation for the fullness of that message in the New Testament. So for example we say that um, Moses is a type of Jesus. The Catechism has got some well-defined uh, statements about typology so I might just have a look. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church paragraph 128 the Church, as early as apostolic times, and then constantly in her tradition, has illuminated the unity of the divine plan in the two testaments through typology, which discerns in God's works of the Old Covenant prefigurations of what he accomplished in the fullness of time in the person of his Son incarnate. And then in the following paragraph, 129, from the Catechism, Christians therefore, 
read the Old Testament in the light of Christ crucified and risen. Such typological reading discloses the inexhaustible content of the Old Testament, but it must not make us forget that the Old Testament retains its own intrinsic value as a revelation reaffirmed by the Lord himself. And then a little bit further on, as an old saying put it, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. And that, um, that last line, of course, is, comes from St. Augustine, who was um, is quite famous for that uh, wonderful, succinct insight as the way we connect the New Testament and the Old Testament. So let's just um, have a look at that because we need to lay a good foundation in, in exactly what typology is so we can really appreciate the significance of, of things. And we said in a, in a previous talk about when we look at scripture we have on one level we have the, um, the literal meaning. Now again the literal meaning is not what we mean when Sometimes people will say, talk about a fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible, oh, they're taking the Bible literally. Um, that's not what we mean here. We're talking about the literal meaning, which is a technical term, which means basically what the author meant when he wrote, that, that meaning of what he was writing. But in Catholic tradition, of course, in biblical studies, we say that there are also spiritual layers that are that reveal more and particularly when we look at them in light of the New Testament and look back we suddenly see how how there's a lot more going on and how profound it is and um, this is what we look at when we look at typology this really comes to the surface in quite an amazing way so just to give you a little taste of this you know we often say that Moses is a foreshadow of Jesus who was to come and if we look at the events in the life we can sort of get similarities so I'll just give you a few examples here right with Moses an evil king tried to kill him as a baby with Christ Herod tries to kill the baby Jesus Moses he was hidden from this evil king Jesus an angel said to hide the child Moses, he was saved by women, his mother, Miriam, his sister, and Pharaoh's daughter. In the, in the New Testament, um, Mary helped and saved Jesus, and other women helped Jesus. In um, Moses, Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, adopted him. With Jesus in the New Testament, Joseph adopted him. Moses was a prince. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. There was a long period of silence in Moses' life from youth to adulthood. The same with Jesus. Moses had a secret identity. Jesus had a secret identity. He was the messianic secret. Moses saved Hebrews. Jesus offered salvation to everyone. So that's just a few and the list just goes on and on. But you start to get a sense now of that connection and the principle of typology of something of the Old Testament foreshadowing a, new, a bigger and a fuller reality 
in the New Testament. So we can say that the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament is a foreshadow of Mary in the New Testament. But first, let's just stop and have a look. What is the Ark of the Covenant as in the Old Testament first? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was... God dictated how it was to be made. He gave very clear instructions. So it was obviously uh, important. And if we look at Exodus 25, verses 9 to 28, we can read there what the Lord was asking uh, of how the ark was to be built. So let's, um, let's, let's pick this up then, Exodus 25, starting at verse 9. They shall make a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell in their midst. This dwelling and all its furnishings you shall make exactly according to the pattern that I will now show you. You shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, that's about a metre, one and a half cubits wide, about 50 centimetres, and one and a half cubits high, Plate it inside and outside with pure gold, and put a moulding of gold around the top of it. Cast four gold rings, and fasten them on the four supports of the ark, two rings on one side, and two on the opposite side. Then make poles of acacia wood, and plate them with gold. These poles you are to put through the rings on the sides of the ark for carrying it. They must remain in the rings of the ark and never be withdrawn. In the ark you are to put the commandments which I will give you. You shall make them a proprietary of pure gold, two cubits and a half long and one and a half cubits wide. Make two cherubim of beaten gold for the two ends of the proprietary, fastening them so that one cherub springs direct from each end. The cherubim shall have their wings spread out above, covering the proprietary with them. They shall be turned towards each other, but with their faces looking toward the proprietary. This proprietary you shall then place on top of the ark. In the ark itself you are to put the commandments which I will give you. There I will meet you, and there from above the proprietary, between the two cherubim on the ark of the commandments, I will tell you all the commands I wish you to give to the Israelites. You shall make me a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Plate it with pure gold, and make a moulding of gold around it. Surround it with a frame, hand breadth high, with a moulding of gold around the frame. You shall make four rings of gold for it, fasten them at the four corners, one at each leg, on two opposite sides of the frame as holders for the poles to carry the table. These poles for carrying the table you shall make of acacia wood and plate it with gold.
So, incredible detail there of how the ark is to be made. And I'm sure many of you remember that um, wonderful movie with Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is about this Ark of the Covenant that we are talking. So we should perhaps just say a little bit about Ark. Okay, we know what Ark is. It's, it's the container, the covenant. What is the covenant? Well, you might remember that God in the Old Testament made a covenant with his people. Covenant is is more than just a contract. A contract is an agreement in regards to things. That is yours, this is mine. But as Scott Hahn says, a covenant is a sacred family bond between persons. I am yours and you are mine. So there's an enormous difference between a contract and a covenant. Covenant is much more personal. So where do we get this idea then? Well, Mary is the Ark of the Covenant in the New Testament. Well, we get it straight from Scripture. If we go to Revelations chapter 11, verse 19, and lead straight in to chapter 12. Now you have to remember, of course, when the um, Scriptures were written, the designation of the chapters came much later. So in a sense, when we see an end of one chapter and the beginning of another, we tend to, in our mind, think that there's a, you know, a gap. But th that gap or that disconnection was not there originally. So let's go Revelations chapter 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant could be seen in the temple. There were flashings of lightning, rumbles, and pearls of thunder, an earthquake, and a violent hailstorm. A great sign appeared in the sky. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. I might add here that all this material that I'm presenting you today comes from Scott Hahn and Tim Staples. In particular, Tim Staples has a very good uh, CD series called All Generations Will Call Me Blessed. It's a massive work, nine CDs, and I uh, highly recommend it if you really want to dive deep into the whole topic of Mary and Scripture. But today, I just wanted to pick out some key points to present a quick overall summary and give you a sense of the importance of Mary as Ark of the Covenant. So coming back to our scripture, we have to remember that when John the Evangelist wrote the book of Revelations and wrote about this vision that he was having, that he was seeing the Ark of the Covenant, well, it, the Ark had been missing for 500 years. And the Ark was the most sacred thing of the Old Testament. And we'll say a little bit more about that later when we talk about the Wailing War. But very, very sacred, the ark, and gone missing for 500 years. So when John writes that he's had in this vision that he can see the ark of the covenant, uh, you know, it's the readers are going to be, it's going to get the reader's attention, right? And of course, he then says, there were flashings of lightning, rumbles and pearls of thunder, 
an earthquake and a violent hailstorm. So you'd, you can feel that tension building. Yes, yes, where is it? Where is it? <laughs> and what does he say? He goes on to write, A great sign appeared in the sky. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. When we celebrate the Feast of the Assumption and we look at the readings for the day, we see that it's all about King David and the Ark from 1 Chronicles 15. And the responsorial song that's used in the Vigil Mass is from Psalm 132. Lord, go up to the place of your rest, you and the Ark of your holiness. We find... Um, references to the ark all through catholic tradition and probably the one that most of catholics are familiar with is from the litany of loretto where we have all these titles of mary and one of them is ark of the covenant and our response is pray for us on the feast of the assumption we notice that the first reading is taken from the book of revelations chapter 11 verse 19 the one that we just read a little a little while ago. You can see that there's a very strong connection then, the way the church has interpreted the Ark of the Covenant of the Old Testament and Mary's role in the New Testament. The Ark of the Covenant is what made the temple holy. It's what made it was the holiest place within the temple. And it was a sign of the presence of God just as the Shekinah cloud is a dwelling place of God, the glory cloud, which used to um, be luminous at night and through the day as a cloud. If you ever go to the Holy Land and go to Jerusalem, you can see the Wailing Wall, which is the remains of uh, one part of the temple. And the temple, what made the temple holy was the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark went missing, the purpose of the Wailing Wall is to bewail the loss of the glorious cloud, the Shekinah cloud, which is the presence of God dwelling amongst the people of Israel. So what we want to do now is just have a look at some of the parallels of the Ark from the Old Testament and St. Elizabeth in the New Testament. In 2 Samuel 6, there's a journey to the hill country of Judea that the Ark of the Covenant took. Likewise, the same phrase is used to describe Mary's journey to the hill country. When the Ark arrived and when Mary arrived, they were both greeted with shouts of joy. Elizabeth greets Mary the same way the Ark of the Covenant was greeted in the Old Testament. The entrance of the Ark and the entrance of Mary are seen then as a blessing on the entire household. David and both Elizabeth react with awe. David says, How shall the Ark of the Lord come to me? In 2 Samuel 6 verse 9. And likewise Elizabeth says, Why should the mother of my Lord come to me? From Luke. The Ark of the Covenant and the mother of our Lord are in a sense two ways of looking at the same reality which become clearer and more personal with Our Lady. 
Then finally, the Ark of the Covenant and Mary both remain in their respective houses for three months. So you can see the parallels. This is the typology showing again. It's no accident. God is trying to tell us and teach us something here. Now note that God himself gave Moses the design for the Ark of the Covenant. It was God himself who demands that the purest gold and the best materials be used and using an incorruptible wood. And when the Ark is consecrated, it is consecrated to God for his purpose for all time. Now we see this parallel with Mary. Mary is prepared to carry Almighty God in her body from the moment of her conception, a sinless, immaculate conception. Mary had to be too made of the purest and finest material. In other words, sinless, and be consecrated to God for all time, ever virgin, ever holy. The sanctuary or the tabernacle for the ark was a colourful tent embroidered with the cherubim called the tent of the meeting. It was the place where God and man met because of the covenant. It was pitched in a courtyard. It was a rectangular area cordoned off from the outside by four walls of curtains and divided into two rooms by a veil of linen within. In the outer room stood a lampstand and an altar for incense. The inner room, called the Holy of Holies, stood the beautiful Ark of the Covenant, made of sweet-smelling wood, an incorruptible acacia wood. And on top of the Ark was the mercy seat, a flat slab of pure gold, the same length and breadth of the Ark itself, and a pair of carved cherubims facing each other. It was called the mercy seat because it was from here that God enthroned and dispensed mercy to his people. The ark was accompanied by a cloud by day and a fire by night as a sign of God's presence. So what made the ark holy? Well, we could say that the ark itself is holy, but especially because of what it contained. And the ark contained three types of Jesus. First of all, it contained the Ten Commandments, the Word of God. It contained Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod is a symbol of authority. And of course, Jesus is the King of Kings. And there was a golden vessel containing some of the miraculous manna which fell from heaven to feed the Hebrews through their wandering in the Sinai Desert. Well, of course, Jesus is the Eucharistic Jesus, which is the true bread from heaven that gives eternal life. So it's these three things that made the Ark holy. But nevertheless, the Ark on itself is still holy. And we can say the same for Mary. Mary in her womb contained the living word of God. She contained 
the ultimate authority, Jesus, the King of Kings. And she carried Jesus, who is the complete and the fullness of the bread from heaven. So Mary, as the Ark of the Covenant, contains the fullness, what was foreshadowed in the Ark. Now the Ark of the Covenant was very powerful, yet it couldn't be touched. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And before he goes in to the inner tabernacle, where the ark is kept, he kills a calf and takes the blood and sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, so as to cleanse Israel from all its sins. Why? As an act of repentance and renunciation, for leading the people into idolatry by building the golden calf. The glory cloud represents the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, it overshadowed the ark when it was consecrated by Moses. And in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon and overshadows Mary. The Most High will overshadow you, Scripture says. In the Old Testament, David leapt and danced before the ark with all his might. In the New Testament, John the Baptist leapt in the womb of Elizabeth. In the Old Testament, David says, Who am I that the ark of the Lord should come to me? And in the New Testament, Elizabeth says, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Note that scripture says the ark is special. Why was the ark so holy? Because of what was inside it. But nevertheless, Scripture declares that the ark itself is still special. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of the Lord for three months. And Scripture says Mary remained with Elizabeth for about three months. So if God demanded this much respect... In the Old Testament Ark, how much more would he demand from the New Testament Ark? Mary, the living Ark. The Old Testament Ark was a shadow of what was to come. The New Testament Ark, the sacred body of Mary. What makes her holy? What she carried in her body. Jesus, the God-man. And just like the Ark... Even though what's inside the ark makes the ark holy, nevertheless the ark is still holy. Well, we can say the same about Mary. Notice that when David says, Who am I that the ark of the Lord should come to me? Notice he didn't say, Who am I that the manna, Aaron's rod and the Ten Commandments should come to me? He referred to the ark itself. And that's the same what happened with Elizabeth. So there is something very holy about the ark. And it's telling us a lot about what it is foreshadowing. The living ark, Mary, the mother of God, who will come carrying the word made flesh. Always in typology, in looking at the Old Testament types, foreshadowing the New Testament realities, we see that the New Testament substance is more perfect and more glorious than the Old Testament types. The New Testament must be more fuller, more complete 
and perfect it. Otherwise, we're going backwards. If Mary, the new Eve, was conceived with original sin, she would be inferior to Eve, who was also created in perfection and without sin. So that is absolutely unthinkable in New Testament theology. It would be like saying that Adam is superior to Jesus, and the new Adam is obviously superior to the old Adam. That's why we refer to Mary as the new Eve. In the Old Testament, we hear how the ark was captured once by the Philistines for seven months. They knew that the secret of the Israelites was the ark. That gave them the power of God. That should be telling us something about the power of our Blessed Mother. Show me a Christian who has devotion to our Blessed Mother and you'll see a Christian who has the power of God. The Philistines placed the ark in their pagan temple of the fishtail god Dagon. The statue crashed down on its face and when it was rightened, fell again flat on its face with both the head and the arms being broken off. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 5. So the ark had a real power. And the ark wreaked such havoc among the Philistines everywhere and inflicting tumours and plague that they eventually they sent it back to the Israelites. And on the way back, some of them looked into the ark and depending upon which scripture variant is correct, anywhere between 70 to thousands of people were struck dead looking into the ark. I'm sure you remember that famous scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark movie where um, they looked inside. But we can see how seriously God takes the holiness of the ark. We look at the Old Testament story where uh, David has become king. He's just conquered Jerusalem and he knows what he wants for Jerusalem. He wants to make it his capital and to make it the place where the Lord will be worshipped. And so David arose and, and all the people with him to bring up the ark of God. And they carried it in a cart that they brought out. Now they weren't supposed to be carrying it in a cart. They're supposed to be carrying it on the poles. And only the Levites were allowed to carry the ark. But in 2 Samuel 6, 5, we read, And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. Then it says, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Azar put out his hand to the ark of the Lord and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Azar, and God smote him there because he put forth his hand to the ark and he died there beside the ark of God. So you can see how seriously God takes the holiness of the ark. And so they were supposed to be carrying it, but putting it on a mule and as it tilted, Azar puts up his hand to stop it falling and um, God struck him dead because it should not have been carried that way. I might add here that many of you may have been to some of the great Marian shrines like Lourdes and Fatima, where every day 
they carry the statue of Our Lady on their shoulders with poles in the same way as Scripture describes how the Ark is to be carried. And this is where we get this tradition from. As Mary is Ark of the Covenant in the New Testament, if Mary is the fullness of the Ark, then she also is carried in a similar way. So that's where we get this wonderful processions that we have. And every night in, in Lourdes, uh, in the summer months, they have 70,000 people there every night. If you ever get a chance to go, by all means go, because it really is um, quite a, a, a moving and powerful experience to see this. But getting back to our scripture, eventually David brought the ark um, to Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 6, 20-23, we read how David danced before the ark with all his might, wearing only a linen loincloth around him. And when David returned to bless his own family, Saul's daughter came out to meet him and asked, How the king of Israel has honoured himself today, exposing himself to the view of all the slave girls of his followers as a commoner might do. But David replied, I was dancing before the Lord, as the Lord lives, who preferred me to your father and his whole family when he appointed me commander of the Lord's people, Israel. Not only will I make merry before the Lord, but I will demean myself even more. I will be lowly in your esteem, but in the esteem of the slave girls you spoke of, I will be honoured. And scripture says, and so Saul's daughter was childless until the day of her death. So God certainly takes very seriously the holiness of the ark. And again we stress, if the holiness of the ark is this serious in the Old Testament, how much more should we honour the holiness of the New Testament ark in which the old one was merely a foreshadow. So all these things point to the importance to honour Mary, to respect her, and never, never, never blaspheme against her. You know, humanly speaking, it would be easy to imagine Jesus saying, well, you criticise me, that's one thing. But if you criticise and denigrate my mother, then be warned. You know, we can all relate to that. There's a certain sanctity about everyone's mother. Imagine the sanctity of Jesus' mother. So that's the end of our session today. Thank you for joining us. But please don't go away because we'll be back in just a moment with today's guest who is going to share something of their own experiences of the graces of Mary. So welcome back. This week's guest, we have Matt Hodson. 
Matt is a fourth-year seminarian. He's currently uh, studying at Good Shepherd Seminary, but he's originally from the Perth Archdiocese. So welcome, Matt. How are you? Yes, I'm going well, Paul. Thank you. Matt, I was wondering if you could share with us today something about your relationship with Mary and perhaps first you could share a little bit about how that relationship developed. Oh, very good question. Myself, I was not always a, uh, a fervent Catholic. I came back to the faith in a big way just after my university uh, degree finished. I was probably at that point where I was looking at you know, future occupations, future endeavors, and uh, was questioning about, you know, where was I going in life? And also, I was questioning my own faith. I was brought up uh, within the Catholic Church, in the Catholic tradition, but I was definitely wavering uh, at that time, in that post-university period. Mm-hmm. And I took some opportunities to, to learn more about the faith and get more involved in the, the church community. And in particular, I, I remember going to a, a youth conference that took place in Perth uh, during the summer. It happens every year called Embrace the Grace, and it was a wonderful experience of Catholic community life. But even then, I was still searching for answers to, to questions specifically about the Catholic beliefs, especially the Mass, and obviously wasn't really catechized well in terms of who Our Lady was or her significance. One thing which I can distinctly remember is um, being with a group of young Catholics and the, the question of the Immaculate Conception came up. And because I was, I was actually completely ignorant about what that even meant and I basically continued on the conversation as if they were talking about Jesus. Uh, that was where I was at in my um, faith journey. I didn't actually realize that the Immaculate Conception, that title, refers to Mary. Another, I guess, looking back now, um, embarrassing, but even there are some people these days who, within the church who wouldn't know about the church's teaching on the virginity of Mary. In particular, there is the teaching that Mary remained a virgin. She was a virgin in conceiving Christ, a virgin in carrying Christ in her womb, and a virgin in giving birth to Christ. And uh, I recall a newspaper article in the editorial section where someone had actually written and complained about the nativity of the Christ movie because it showed Mary in pain during childbirth. And I was a bit sort of yeah, thinking that this person is a bit over the top. I mean, who who really cares, you know, whether Mary was in is in pain or not, you know, during her childbirth. But actually, uh, looking back, I can see that that's actually a very important um, doctrinal point and that uh, the movie did get it wrong in, in that particular scene. Uh, but this is something I've only come to grasp over time. But I just say those things just to express where I was at in my understanding of Mary. But it was really through the inspiration of other people that I came to know Mary as a, as a friend, as um, someone that I could ask for assistance and ask to pray for me. Uh, it happened first and foremost at the 2007 Youth Leaders Formation course, which took place in preparation for the Sydney World Youth Day in 2008 
and I was with a group of 20 young people from around Australia, all wanting to know more about the faith, live it, and then go back to their communities where they came from and uh, assist the church in whatever way they could. And praying the rosary as a, as a community was, was something which um, I really appreciated during that time. And also being encouraged to consecrate myself to Our Lady, which is something that I did after that course had taken place. I, I did the 33-day the uh, consecration to Our Lady and it was something which I was trying to organize so that I did the consecration on August the 15th being the assumption. As it turned out I wasn't able to um, get it spot on but as Providence would have it the last day of the consecration happened when I was in Chesterhover at the the Shrine of Jasnogora in Poland and uh, that's obviously a very significant Marian site in the world. And so I sense there was a, a bit of divine providence in leading me to that place for my consecration. And I'm very happy and thankful to say that since that time, I really haven't missed out on a rosary. Uh, it's, it's a very rare thing for me to not say a rosary in any given day. And I think that's really helped me in my, in my journey towards the seminary. And I guess the thing that I would like to say the most about Our Lady in terms of leading me into the seminary would have to be from the church's document, Lumen Gentium, where it speaks about Mary in the final chapters. There's one particular sentence that, that stands out where it says, the son whom she brought forth is he whom God placed as the firstborn among many brethren, that is, the faithful in whose generation and formation she cooperates with a mother's love. So I guess I can't really point to, you know, a moment or a vision or, or anything like that where Our Lady has showed herself to me, but I definitely feel those words very keenly where it talks about her participating in the generation and formation of the brothers and sisters of Christ. And I feel like she's been there every step of the way preparing me to make that step to, to enter the seminary, which is something that I did do two years after that youth leaders formation course. And so I have this, this sense that Mary is always there and she's not, she's not blowing a trumpet She's not um, trying to draw attention to herself. She's, she's always leading us towards Christ. And I don't know where I would be, actually, if I didn't have a mother in heaven looking after me. Yeah, Matt, it's interesting how you talk about the rosary. It's amazing how many people uh, refer to their introductory to the rosary and then continually praying the rosary which has really deepened their love for Our Lady and obviously it has has the same for you. Now that you are a seminarian and, and have been for the, the last four years, how is Mary say a part of your daily spiritual life currently now as you study and as you go about your work? Okay, well just going through a typical day, the first thing that I would do when I wake up in the morning is I offer my, my day to God. Then I'll say a prayer of consecration to the Sacred Heart. 
which I do every day. And then the third prayer that I pray is always the prayer of consecration to Our Lady. And it's a particular prayer uh, written by St. Maximilian Kolbe. So my day starts with Mary uh, as the, the third prayer that I pray each morning. Now, at lunchtime, every day here at the seminary, we'll, play, we'll pray the Angelus. So the Angelus begins, the angel declared unto Mary, and followed by invocations and Hail Marys. And really what it does is it brings the reality of the incarnation back into the forefront of our mind. So we've probably been engaged in uh, some work. It might have been physical, it might be academic, doing some sort of work during the morning. But then at the turn of the day, when sort of morning turns into afternoon, we just call to mind the incarnation and the reality that God has come among us in his son, Jesus Christ, and that it was through Mary that Jesus did come among us. Uh, So I think the Angelus, while short, only takes two minutes. In a very important prayer and quite significant that Mary is right in the middle of it all. Then before the day is finished or, you know, before we pray our night prayer, which is the last prayer of the day, I'll always try and say my rosary. So I like to do it at a a different time each day just to um, use, you know, the different natural uh, phenomena that we have, say the, um, you know, the rising sun in the morning or darkness at night. I like to say the, you know, the joyful mysteries at night uh, replicating, uh, especially that third joyful mystery where Christ is born in the dead of night or when, when Christ rises from the dead in the middle of the night. And, you know, the sorrowful mysteries, I generally like to pray them during the middle of the day just to, you know, call to mind that this was the time that, that Christ was led to Calvary or maybe the luminous mysteries, I like to pray in the afternoon or evening just as the sun's going down because of that connection with the fifth luminous mystery, the institution of the Eucharist, which happened in the evening. So that's something which, which I like to do when I say my rosary. And the rosary itself is very powerful, uh, a contemplation of Christ, you know, pretty much hand in hand with Mary through all the different stages of, of Christ's life. And so it's a, it's a beautiful prayer and I would never miss out on saying the rosary. Then one thing which always happens at the end of the day is we say night prayer as a community here. And the last thing that happens at night prayer is we sing a Marian anthem. Salve Regina is probably the most well-known, but there are others in the breviary, which is our, our prayer book that we pray together as a community every day, three times a day. And there is that sense that in Mary we see the, you know, the, the fullness of Christian life. And um, so it's, it's fitting that we sing a, a Marian anthem to, to conclude our day because she's the, the, the perfection of everything we're, we're striving to, to be in our lives. And then me personally, just before I go to sleep, I've got a, a little miraculous medal which I'll wear around my neck and I'll just kiss that and say, Mother Mary, pray for me and protect me. And so that, those are the last words 
um, that go through my head um, before I fall asleep. So this is the, the daily life of a seminarian with, res with respect to Mary only. Obviously, there's other things that happen during the day, but I just highlight those just so you can get a, a feel for what does that relationship involve on a daily basis. There would be a lot of people who are listening, Matt, who would um, perhaps struggle a bit with the rosary. And as someone who has really found it such a, a treasure of grace, what would you say to people who say, look, I, I struggle a bit with the rosary, I, I find the repetition, it's, it's hard for me. What advice could you give those people? Okay, so with the rosary, there's two distinct aspects. So the first aspect is the, the prayers, so the, the Our Fathers, the Hail Marys and the Glory Bees, which are repetitive. And I think that that is the meditative aspect of it. So we can draw something out of those individual prayers, but it is a common complaint that it becomes, you know, tedious. But then you've got the second aspect. So the second aspect is the fact that with each decade we're meditating on a mystery of Christ's life. So for someone who's struggling perhaps with the first aspect, Maybe they need to make use of reflections or scripture readings or, or something that can bring the mystery alive to them. And then obviously then there may be other people who they need to come back to what's, what's contained in, in those central prayers. Like the Our Father itself is a, is a summation of the, everything in the, in the Christian faith. And so there is a lot in there. So if for whatever reason, you're sort of drifting away from the mystery, you know, you, coming back to the Our Father gets you right back to ground zero and some of the most important things that you need to know as a human being. So I guess those two aspects of the rosary really do work together and can ensure that people get the most out of the prayer. Matt, as someone who will be a priest in a few years, how do you see... Mary as being important in the everyday life of a priest? Yes, that's a very good question. So as a, as a priest studying in the Western Church, I will make a promise of celibacy uh, should I proceed to ordination. And that means that uh, I will never get married and will never have children. And this is a big thing for um, young men to consider. It is something we do have to give up. But it's always important to realise that we're still men and we're still entering into a spousal relationship, although it's not a typical spousal relationship because the spousal relationship which we enter into is directly with God and with his church. But that doesn't mean that we don't need some form of companionship, which is an ongoing form of companionship. Sure, in a priest's life, there will be special people, special friends. But the thing is, is that you do need, especially a female figure, to be constantly there, uh, which is what a man has when he gets married, so he always has his wife there. And I guess looking ahead towards the priesthood, 
I can see that having Our Lady there as a constant companion, albeit she's not physically present, she's still there spiritually at every moment of every day. And so I honestly can't see how it would be possible to proceed as a priest without having that strong devotion, that strong love and that strong relationship with Our Lady. So I think it's critically important and it's something that needs to be nurtured prior to ordination. And I'm very happy to say that it's a very um, important part of the formation that takes place at my seminary here at Good Shepherd. Thank you so much for being with us today. You've really shared some amazing insights there and I'm sure everyone uh, appreciates uh, you spending the time with us today from your busy schedule. So thank you so much, Matt. To all our listeners, thank you for being with us today and please join us next time when we will look at our Queen, our Mother, the graces of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Radio.org.au